look at somebody and say there's free donuts after service. I saw some of you jokers second service jumping in on first service donuts. I saw it. Right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And uh, what that means is, is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, uh, but uh, I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. Actually, he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh, and so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus, and we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall. If you need some help, don't worry, Lompoc. We're going to get it on the wall. And I know you're all jealous, that whole line about the donuts that Buellton have. You have a taco bar after service. And so now Buellton is equally as jealous. We are equally opportunity uh, offenders. And uh, so, hey, we're so glad that you're here. You're going to need a Bible to follow along in this story. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can just slip up your hand at bo- both campuses and one of our ushers will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you take that, read that every single day, because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Three of you. Thank you. Uh, Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to open the Bible. We're going to have this opportunity to meet with Jesus. So turn in your Bible to the gospel of John. And if you're new to the scriptures, you can start in the right and turn left and you'll find it much faster. You go two thirds of the way through, you'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 30 first, and then we're going to uh, back up and read from 19. It was a year of Sundays ago that we started the book of John, and uh, we're going to finish up basically next uh, week. We're going to close out maybe the next two weeks. We're going to close out the gospel of John, and uh, and then we're going to start another book, I guess, uh, and we're just going to keep reading the Bible. Amen. And every single week, we're going to open it and meet with Jesus. Amen? And that's what we should be doing every week, every day, having an opportunity to just keep going through books of the Bible, keep reading the scriptures and allowing it to challenge us and change us and exhort us all until we see Jesus face to face. Amen? Uh, that's the purpose of the church. Ephesians 4 says that we would gather together and equip and minister to one another and we would speak the truth in love. How long should we do that? Till Jesus returns. And so that's what we're going to keep doing with the expectation that he is coming again. Amen. And so I want you to turn to the gospel of John chapter 20, starting in verse 30, which is where we started a year ago was John uh, 20 and 30. 30. We were, we were kind of like the movie that starts with the end and the opening scene and then backs up and goes, oh, that's how we got here. And so I want to read this again. Pastor Tyler, uh, the man with the 
golden voice on the video you just uh, watched and you heard his voice at the end read this passage. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. The signs he's talking about are the signs that we're going to look at in John 19 and on. And then he ends with this. He says these are signs and he says there are many other signs that he did in the witnesses of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name look at verse 19 on the evening of that day resurrection day what we celebrated and some call Easter resurrection day that we remember on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father sent me, I, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to them, have you believed because you have seen me? Then this next part of this verse is where we find our story. There's a couple times, one was at the priestly prayer of Jesus. He prays for those who will hear the words of the disciples and believe. That's you and I. And then he prays for us here. He says an encouragement. He says, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I pray that we would open the scriptures and we would look to you, that you would speak to us, you would challenge us. Let us not come with our preconceived notions and ideas, but let us fall at the feet of Jesus and declare, my Lord, my God, you are who you say you are. You did what you said you came to do and you're coming again and our life is for you. It's of you. And we live and have our being in you. We thank you and let everything we say and everything we do bring glory and honor to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. These, this passage is an important passage in scripture. And, and he leaves it here as evidence of the resurrection of what has happened, but he also leaves evidence here that helps us look forward to where this whole thing 
is going. See, this passage begins to tell us about what Jesus was like after the resurrection, what his resurrected body was like, and what ultimately things will be like on the other side. Because here's the great reality, 100% of all people die. I'm not sure why that's funny, but both services laughed at that. It's like, here's this big statistic, 100%. Yep, 100%. Here's the reality. We all live with the reality of life and death. And at different points in our lives and in different places in our lives, we consider and think about the reality of life and death differently. Maybe it's in the passing of a loved one, attending a memorial. Maybe it's as I begin to uh, be in the twilight of my years and I begin to reflect on my life. And I'm beginning to think, man, I'm closer to that day than I was 30 years ago. And all of a sudden I'm contemplating. I was, I was spending some time with, with the couple, the, the lady that you saw baptized up here. And I'm going to talk a little bit about it later. But this couple has been attending the online campus from San Diego for two years. And today you saw them live and in person and get baptized. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Right? It's amazing. And uh, I, I loved talking with them. I got to spend some time with them yesterday. It was the first time I ever met them. And, and, and we were talking. They said it was a, a sermon a while back that you talked about. And we've heard lots of sermons over our lives. And, 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 but it was a sermon that you talked about where the idea that death is not final, but it moves me from life to life. That actually death through the, the power of the resurrection simply it becomes a minuscule doorway, a momentary glimpse moving from life to life. Well, why is that important? Because this is a reality for all of us. So I could get up and, and give you a sermon uh, that tries to inspire you or challenge you or give you the 27 steps to being awesome. And I tried them all. They did not work. You can ask my wife. Right? And so I can give you the tools and tricks and tips and, and try to help you be a better person. But the reality is the essence of the gospel addresses this thing that is, the, that is the great equalizer with all of us is that all of us will face death. And the reality of this is either daunting or for some of us, as Paul would say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How could you say that unless you believed that there was more than what meets the eye? Unless you could say that there's more. And the reality is, is that all of us struggle with, for all of time we struggle with, there has to be more than this life. And the Bible says that God has hidden eternity in our Hearts that all of us know their sense of something more, that most people are not atheists. Most people believe there is some place, there's some afterlife. And then when I have to uh, contemplate and wrestle with this, it brings up essentially what I believe about everything. What you think about how we end up addresses with how we started and what we're doing while we're here. See, the reality is, is no matter where you're from or where you came from, ultimately you as an individual, not as an association, you have to address what you believe about everything. Or in other words, your worldview. How do you see the world? 
And your worldview addresses these four issues, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Or in other words, where did we come from? Why are we here? What do I do while I'm here? And where is this whole thing going? And at different points in your life, you'll deal with the middle. You'll address questions of, of morality. You'll, you'll ask what should we do and what ought we do. And see, this passage begins to uh, help us understand where this is going, what we're doing while we're here, why are we here, and how did we get here? The start has to do with the end. Any race that you run has a starting point and a finishing point. And so the scriptures begin to say to run this race, train for this race. There is a start, there is a beginning, and there is an end. And whether or not you're thinking about it in those terms or at some points in your life when you're at those moments of tragedy when you're mourning the loss of a loved one you're addressing these issues you're thinking about those things i, I gotta be honest with you uh, when when people when, when i was uh, younger would talk about heaven it really freaked me out i don't know about you right? They would say things like, it's one long worship service. And I was like, that sounds like hell, right? What do you mean? My, our band wasn't as good as this one, man. I was like, no way. One long church service? Are you kidding me? No, thank you, friends. I, like heaven felt like, like a holding tank for saints. It was like time out. Like you're done with all the cool stuff. You go sit in this white room. You're just going to be in this trance worshiping God. And it's, it's more of an ethereal place. And, and here's the reality. Most of what we think about the afterlife, most of what we think about life and death and heaven and hell really come from mythology, really comes from pop culture, not necessarily what you've read. And yet here we are in a passage where the risen Lord is amongst the disciples and it gives us insight into where this whole thing is going. I mean, Jesus is there with the disciples. It says the doors are locked because they were afraid of the Jews. And you realize the boldness that one day they will preach with, something changed, something they saw. They're still afraid for their lives and they're locking the door even after the resurrection because they still have not understood all the implications of what will happen. So the doors are locked. They're like, I saw him, you saw him. Did we really see him? I mean, maybe, maybe it was a ghost. Maybe it was a spirit that we saw. And then Jesus appeared appears in the room with them. And then, oh, wait a second. And it says the doors are locked. And so somehow Jesus walks through walls. And you're like, hey, okay, buddy. Like, really? I don't know that I can go there. Like, Jesus walked through walls. Last week, we celebrated that he rose from the dead. Walking through walls is a piece of cake, friend. It's merely a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> Right? Like, you believe it. The essence, that's why Christ says, if, or Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, everything else is in vain. So if, if you believe a man destroyed death and came through its doorway victorious, then you can believe that he can walk through walls and lock doors are no problem for the risen Lord. Somebody say amen to that. 
But, but this passage has actually led people to twist that Jesus didn't raise bodily, that he wasn't real. There was more an idea or maybe he was a spirit. Maybe his body was laid in the grave and what they saw was a ghost because he walked through walls. But then we get that they're there and he shows them his hands and his side. And then Thomas, who wasn't there, and he, and he gets a bad rap, let's be honest. They call him Doubting Thomas, but, but no one calls Peter a chicken, you know, like I, I, I think, I, I think the reality is that sometimes he gets a bad rap and sometimes we realize this people are on different places in their walk of faith. And yet Jesus somehow meets you exactly where you are. Somebody say, amen. Aren't you glad that Jesus met you where you were at? He answered your questions and he woos you. And po- And listen, if you're here today and you have those questions, I can tell you, I, I, I will just encourage you. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He is knocking and he wants to answer the longings of your heart. Thomas is there and, and he, he comes back eight days later. He says, listen, uh, I, I, unless I touch his hands and I put my hand in his side, I will never believe. Some people call him doubting and maybe Maybe some of, uh, some of us would call him one of our scientific friends. He's looking for empirical evidence. He's looking for the facts and he wants to touch. He wants to get his hands in the clay and Jesus obliges him. He walks in the same way eight days later. They're in the upper room. The door is locked and here comes Jesus in the room and he looks straight at Thomas. He goes, come here, boy. Hey, you were talking about these? Is this what you wanted? And he meets him exactly where he's at. I will answer your questions. You want empirical evidence? Put your hand in my wound. Touch here, touch here, touch here. And all of a sudden what happens is this argument that Jesus did not raise bodily is broken up by the next passage where John strategically and impromptu by the Holy Spirit, where some may use the walking through walls to suggest he was merely a spirit. He then says that actually Tom, Thomas touched him and was with him and he was real. We felt him. He was real. See, this idea of realness is something that people are still wrestling with because you are real. Go ahead and Go ahead and touch, touch, touch your, reach out and touch somebody, you know, right? And, 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 and yet you are real. You are a real person. But you know, this is still a debate. Do you know that the idea that we're not really real has been argued for centuries? There's this thing called Gnosticism, which actually recently came up on the most famous podcast in the world using the word Gnosticism. You wouldn't be familiar with it now, but the New Testament authors dealt with this philosophy and and this ideology for uh, decades. And it's infiltrated all throughout the the years. It's trying to suggest that you aren't a real person person, that maybe you're a simulation, maybe you're just neurons, maybe we're all in a dream. Maybe Leonardo DiCaprio is walking around and like he's in Inception. And yet the, the great philosopher who would say this, this is why he says it, to, to begin to uh, dispute this idea of Gnosticism or simulation. He, he says this, I think therefore I am. 
Come on, Lompoc, were you with me? I think, therefore, I am. This idea of being is wrapped up in your mind. What you think, your awareness, your conscious uh, behavior, who you are as an individual, what you think, your mind, your ideas begin to then express themselves in your behaviors because what you believe is what, you, what and how you will behave. The beliefs drive the behaviors. And so he says something like this, I think therefore I am. I'm aware of my being. I'm aware of consciousness. I I actually begin to contemplate the why of the universe. I begin to ask the question, why am I here? And then you ask the question of morality. What am I doing? What have I done? See, the rest of creation doesn't think like this. We've been building this argument over the past couple of weeks. When you think of something scientifically, when you think about a rock, you just say, that's a rock. You don't talk about whether it's a good or bad rock. You just say, that's a rock or that's a tree. And and meaning and and whether good or bad, some sense of morality and purpose only comes in when there is a sense of purpose. When someone comes in and says, I want to use this rock for my landscaping, or I want to use this tree as a shade tree. Now you're inserting purpose with whether or not this is a good tree or a bad tree. But, But then let's think about it even in the idea of the animal kingdom if you will. You don't think about what a dog should be. You just think about what he is. If you think there's a bad dog, you say there's no bad dogs. There's only bad. Right? That, that, that's us. And so you only think of that when we are inserted into the mix and now morality is a part of it. And listen, animals are not contemplating the cosmos. They're not communicating with one another the same way we are. And you're like, Pastor Sam, come on. Animals talk to one another. It's sophisticated language. I mean, apes do sign language. Yeah, bro, they say poop, right? Right? They're not doing quantum physics and sending images around the world via satellite or metal things floating in space, friends. They they are not contemplating life and existence, yet we are. That's why so many of the best-selling books are self-help or purpose books, contemplating meaning and morality. The rest of the world is not doing this. When when a lion is, is beginning to take a gazelle as his prey and he pounces and rips this thing in half. This is a PG-13 sermon, friends. We got kids church for the young ones, right? That was a joke and it didn't go over in either services. Like you shouldn't be talking about anyways. And and, and let me go more graphic. The lion shreds this thing apart and he begins to pick the flesh from his teeth and begins to wipe his paw. You know what the lion, the lion and is not thinking, you know what she's not thinking? Do you know what he's not thinking? Oops, I did it again. Right? I told myself last time that gazelle comes by, I'm not going to do it this time. Nope, I'm not. I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flaunt in front of me. And I'm just going to be like, no, resist the devil and he will flee. Right? Like, you know what the line is not thinking? Oh, I, I shouldn't have this urge to kill this gazelle. She's proud of it, friend. She's like, <laughs> that was delicious, Right? And then those little demon cats you got, that's why they bring rats as offerings to you at your door. You're like, look what I 
what I did for you. You're like, whoa, what are you doing? This is, this is kind of a good thing, I guess, right? And yet uh, animals are not contemplating consciousness. They're, they're not contemplating existence. They're not thinking about morality. They're not saying, oops, I did it again. And yet some of us, like a Britney Spears song, are constantly going, oh, did it again. Yet some of us are thinking about our own morality, what we're doing, the mistakes we make, shame and guilt, fear of punishment becomes a part of our story. This is a part of what it means to be a human being made and designed in the image of God. So if I think about right and wrong and morality, there has to be some purpose for why I'm here because purpose is what gives morality and meaning what I ought to be. And if there is an ought to being, then there must be a creator who put this law in in nature who sets this thing going forward and if there is a beginning to this thing then there has to be an end to this thing where did I come from why am I here what am I doing while I'm here and where is this thing going and yet John John will open his book and he'll say this. He'll steal a a, a Greek philosophy word. He'll say in the beginning was the logos and the Logos was with God and was God. And then the, the Logos, the word, the highest form of intelligence that scientist Stephen Meyer would write a New York Times bestseller called Signature in the Cell as scientific discovery moves forward. The existence of God and the evidence for God is further along than further away. When people try to suggest that scientific evidence is disproving God, friend, you've not studied the evidence. You've not looked at what scientific theory is out there. As he writes a new book called A Return to the God Hypothesis, because people are wrestling with the data. People are wrestling with the evidence like the discovery of DNA, that you have language in your code, language in your cell that tells everything about you that you could wrap this around the earth several times the amount of information that is in one cell and if there is language there has to be intelligence if there's intelligence outside of you and I there must be a God that sets this thing in motion and determines where I'm going and John says the word the logos became flesh and we saw him and we touched him and he lived among us and then we saw him raised from the dead and this evidence that they went from cowards locking the doors in fear of the Jews that they would later after they fully realized what was being done they became courageous proclaimers of the risen Lord and every single one of them would gladly go to their death believing a lie or something and someone that they saw. And friends, if you see a dead man walking, it will fundamentally change you. And yet one eyewitness can convict you in a court of law and Jesus appeared to more than 500 and these disciples actually seen him and saw him. One of them, if you were writing a fairy tale, you would make sure that everyone had their story straight. If you, were, if, you were, if you were propagating a lie and you were trying to convince people, you would never write something like one of us was doubting. We'd say, no, 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 we all believed from the beginning. We knew this the entire time, right? Like you knew it was a Ponzi scheme the whole time, didn't you? Anyways, and, and yet 
The reality is, is that they wrote into the text, one of us doubted. One of us said he would never believe unless he put his hands in the wounds. And that's exactly what he did, showing us that Jesus actually raised bodily from the dead. And so, uh, so then John will go on and write in first John, he goes, I can't explain it. He walked through walls, but we touched him. Later, we're going to read that he, he made a charcoal fire and he ate fish with them. He was a real person, a real being. And this life that he offers you is absolutely real. That's good preaching, Pastor Sam. Thank you. Right? <laughs> amen. Lompoc was like, yeah, amen. Right? And uh, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. Anyways, uh, you're like, there's donuts later, and I want you to wrap this up, right? <laughs> and yet, Jesus is real. The evidence is overwhelming of the resurrection. But what's even more evident is now he leaves for us evidence. And this evidence is this new life that's found in Christ. This new life where, where the old you is rendered powerless and behold, there's something new. And if you talk to anyone who's been following Jesus, they will tell you that man, they're so thankful that they're not who they used to be. Aren't you thankful that you're not who you used to be? Somebody say amen to that. Some of you meet you and they haven't seen you in years. Man, you're just different. Seems new. Paul was one of those examples. We talked, he was a, a murderer of Christians and would become a martyr proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anything, uh, if anything we've learned over the past two years is people at the extremes do not change their mind. And yet Paul was on the extreme and yet he met the risen Lord and it changed his life. And Jesus is still changing lives for 2000 years. These words the words in this book that leaves for us this overwhelming evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we then see and study and open and look to. And it's been going viral and stood the test of time for thousands of years. And yet people are trying to write things that are significant. Write a New York Times bestseller. You forget about it a few months later. Man, and yet this book inspired the invention of the printing press. It's literally the first book. All other books, all the ones on your shelf are only here because people set out to print the Bible and put it in the hands of the people so that every time they opened it, they could meet with Jesus. And yet we have this book and we have this evidence. And as people read it, as people quote it, the ideas of Jesus, the revolutionary ideas of Jesus, the life of Jesus seems to change us. But here's the reality for anyone who's been following Jesus for some time. You're aware of the new you and the old you. Been there? You ever had a conversation with you? Some of you need to have a conversation with you, like knock it off, you know, right? The old you. No matter where you're at, maybe you're starting out in this thing or maybe you're a seasoned saint, you're closer to that, that great equalizer than you've ever been. You begin to contemplate the old you and the new you. And I remember being 
here the first few years of pastoring this church, there was a seasoned saint in the church. She was getting up in years. She was close to 90 some years old. And I would go over a few times a year. We'd go every birthday and celebrate her birthday. Her name was Rachel. And she, she stopped being able to come to church because she was legally deaf and blind. And it was just very hard for her. But if I sat close to her at a kitchen table, she could read my lips and we could have conversations. But progressively over the years, she would get worse and worse. And we would use a, uh, a whiteboard to communicate with one another. And I remember going over there towards the end of her life. And she had the questions much like my grandfather did. And much like other people will have as we get towards the end, people will begin to ask the question, did I do enough in my new life to make up for my old life? Did I balance out the scales They'll begin to ask the question, I know me, I'm aware of me. And oftentimes our mistakes begin to scream louder than our good deeds. And we're trying to equalize them. Maybe you can identify with that. And she's asking me the question, someone who's been following Jesus for decades. And towards the end of her life, she's asking the question, did I do enough? How good is good enough? And the best I could. I'm, I'm trying to explain to her. Actually, 1 John, the same author, he writes in 1 John, he says, I write these things that you may have assurance of faith. He writes the gospel of John. He says, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. And then what happens as he ages and his friends have passed away and people haven't seen the return of Christ, people are beginning to ask the question, what happens after we die? They're asking the question, how do I know that I have this new life? Because I'm aware of my mistakes. I'm aware of the old me. I'm aware of the, the stuff I've done. And I don't know if I've balanced out the scales. All of us wrestle with this. So even Pastor John, the one who wrote this book and first, second, and third John and the book of Revelation, he writes the book of Revelation. He says, I write these things that you may have assurance of faith. Because there'll be moments where you're questioning. You're gonna be questioning, did I do enough? But here's the reality. This is not about what you've done. This is about what he has done. Someone say amen to that. This whole thing is not about your works. It's not about what you've done. It's what he's done and the life that he's given us. See, when he breathes on the disciples, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It mimics Genesis 2, when God makes man in his own image. And it says, he breathed on them and gave them the breath of life. And then sin came in. Sin brought death. And the Bible describes what happens before this life in Christ is merely existence. It's really what it means to be dead and lonely, people who have everything but have a sense of nothing, still looking, still wondering. It's merely existence, and the Bible calls that death. Ephesians 2 says it this way, that we once were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked. Dead people walking. See, Hollywood didn't come up with the idea of zombies. The Bible did, friend. Dead people walking. And here's a little pro tip for you Christians. Don't be offended when dead people do dead things, friend. Oh, that, that, that was good. 
Somebody say amen to that. Don't be offended when zombies act like zombies. When people move towards death and destruction and they don't have life, he says, remember when you too walked that way? Don't, don't forget you too once were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you walked. But because of his great love, he has made us alive. He's, he's taken the dirt, dirt man. Adam mean, Adam means dirt man. And he seats us in heavenly places. He literally takes a mud pie and makes it his trophy. It's like that one's Sam Kaiser. It's a mess, right? Like it, it's literally, that's what this life is. It's this messed up, broken dirt pie that somehow God shapes into a trophy and he uses it for the, all of the universe. He goes, that's my glory. That's what I'm able to do. I'm ready to take messes. See, that's evidence. And what we realize is towards the end, we go, man, I messed up. I'm aware of the dirt. I'm aware of the realness of this, but I'm also aware of the spiritual reality that's happened in my life. And this war of the flesh and the spirit, I'm constantly aware of the reality that there are two me's that live inside of me. So I'm trying to explain all the complexity of what I just said to you, to a woman who's deaf and blind who can barely see what I'm saying. So I'm like, Lord, help me. What am I, I going to do? And in my uh, most uh, artistic fashion, I, I, I draw a little stick figure with a basketball jersey on it. And I write a two. And I go, Rachel, there are two yous that live inside of you. And I go, and that won't change until you see Jesus face to face. I mean, that's the reality. That's the Christian life. Also, you get, I go, no, the, the, the fact that you follow Jesus in your messed up way, as we begin to talk to those who are waiting to be baptized, I go, this is not saying to the world that you're perfect. What it's saying is I'm following the one who is perfect. What you're saying is, is I'm following Jesus. So if you get around me, you might bump into him because that's who I'm hanging with. If people get around you, the residue of Christ should rub off on them. The aroma of Christ, they say, you smell like Jesus, right? And you, you, you look different. You, you seem different. That's this new life. Romans says it this way, that behold, anyone who is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is rendered powerless for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? If you're condemned, you're guilty and you're awaiting punishment. But here's the reality of the gospel is what you're aware of is that that there are two me's and the old me is rendered powerless. He's not driving the car. I told him to get in the back. This new me, this new life in Christ that is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. He's the one in charge. That's what conversion is. That's what Thomas goes through. Thomas believes he's awakened to the reality of the gospel. He finds empirical evidence of the resurrected Lord and he begins to believe, and this is his declaration, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. He's saying, you're the one who's in charge. You started this whole thing. You're why I'm here. You're the work that I should be doing and you're what I'm hoping for. 
my Lord and my God. He reflects the, the psalmist. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus says, peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? You have peace that you no longer have fear of judgment because the enemy will come in and say, you're gonna pay for that. You've been there. There's no way that your good deeds have outweighed the bad. You're, you're beginning to look at the scale like he's right. I, I would never, but see the reality of the work of the cross is that he removed the scales. He kept, he balanced the scales. He did the work, he kept it. He lived the life and he paid the debt that we owed. And he said, it is finished. Bill is paid in full. So now when I read it, it's no longer an invoice. It's a receipt declaring the goodness of God for by grace, you know what grace means? Undeserved, unmerited, couldn't work for it couldn't earn it. Nothing that you do. No balancing of the scale. All the good works that you do. You think I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do all my summer church attendance. And somehow that's going to outweigh. It would never, the Bible says that our attempts at righteousness are filthy rags. That's what they measure up to. Never measuring up, all falling short of the glory of God. So when the enemy comes in and says, the old you, and that guy, that weasel's taking you out. When, when he says to you, you're going to pay for that, you are able to, by faith, trust in the finished work of Christ and remind him that he's powerless. He's been defeated. He no longer has a curse on you for the curse of sin is broken and his love has spoken life to me, you remind him that your debt has been paid in full. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, least anyone should boast. Least anyone should boast. So that means Christians do not get to puff out their chest and go, man, I'm a really good Christian. If you believe that, you are no longer that. Right? It's like evidence of, of there's a passage in the Old Testament that we know that Moses couldn't have wrote it. They had to have help and scribes because it says, and Moses was the most humble man on the face of the planet. And if Moses wrote that, he is no longer the most humble man on the face of the planet. And so actually the progression of Paul is like this. He puffs out his chest. I'm an apostle called by God, not by men. He starts out in his ministry, but as he gets closer to God, let me tell you what maturity in Christ is, is your awareness of what Christ has done in spite and in light of what you are and what you've done. That's the gospel. Paul then, as he moves along, he goes, I'm least of the saints. Like I'm the least of the Christians. By the end of his ministry, you know what he begins to declare? I'm chief of sinners. I'm as broken and messed up and somehow God took a dirt pie, a murderer of Christians and made him a martyr who would write some of the most prolific works in Greek antiquity, write 17, 16 books of the New Testament that have been going viral. His words have been quoted. And yet he was a murderer turned martyr. See, life change, new life in Christ is real and he changes us. See this one passage at the end of this, he says, 
Blessed are those, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. He prays for us that we would believe and trust the testimony and we would look, how would they go from cowards to courageous proclaimers of the gospel unless something happened? Why would his brother go to his death for a lie if he didn't believe he was actually God? And you know what your brother's like, there's no way he's convincing you of that. And yet they do. And yet throughout the centuries, the world has changed. The gospel has went forth. He took the symbol of death, a Roman cross, and he turned it to a symbol of hope and salvation. It's on your insurance card. It's on a lifeguard stand. When you get a boo-boo, you run for a first aid kit that has a symbol of death and destruction on it. He changed the known world. And evidence is in this new life. And here's the revolutionary thing. He says that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's revolutionary because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, the Holy Spirit, there's only one holy. So if he calls him the Holy Spirit, he must also be God. And he says, this spirit's gonna live in you. What? Me? I don't deserve this. I'm mud pie. You know, you're, the holiness of God's gonna live. The Bible says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's revolutionary. It's not a journey to Mecca. It's not a building made by men's hands. It's the life that the Holy Spirit is building and creating inside of you. Now, Holy places don't exist, only holy people made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for you. It's no longer in a temple, but in living beings fueled by the presence of God. You now are a move of God everywhere you go. Everyone is made in the image of God, but now the fuel to be the ambassadors of Christ Christ living among the people. You are the body of Christ because he lives in you. So then there is this sense of you and I, we don't get to see Jesus face to face or touch his hands, touch his side, but you know what you do? You see each other. You see what he's done in lives and you go, man, that doesn't make sense. How does someone go from believing that to that? unless the Holy Spirit has breathed on them and given them life. So you go, Pastor, how do I know I've received the Holy Spirit? Do you call Jesus Lord? Do you believe he's the reason why you are here? Do you believe he's given you purpose? Do you believe that that's where we're going and it doesn't make sense? I don't know what we'll be like. I don't think we're all gonna turn into little fat babies on, on, on clouds and have angels wings. I don't believe that. If you do, that's weird. <laughs> All I know is he walked, he talked, he ate. It's real. John says, I don't know yet what it will be like. I can't even explain it. But I know that when I see him face to face, we'll be like him. I wanna be like him. So Paul says, if I live, I'll live to Christ. And if I die, to die is gain. So our role 
is to live in a way that people can see Jesus in you. Blessed are those who haven't seen, but yet believe. And the evidence he leaves is you and I, that we may do good works, not because we're trying to earn something, but we're responding to the good gift of grace. See, anyone who ever received a good gift always responds. That's why you get your kid that PlayStation 75 on Christmas. They're like, mom, dad, love you. Ah, I'm gonna clean my room. My room will be clean every day from here till eternity. You're like, yeah, okay. Like, I'm gonna mow the, mow the lawn. Like, we got gardeners. Like, I just wanna do it. I wanna wash the dishes. I wanna do something. I, I, I wanna respond. And the response indicates the worth and value of the gift. When you realize just what you've been given, you'll respond. You'll respond with love and grace and good works, not so you can earn it, so that you can see Jesus more and more in the works that are being done and in the community that you have one another. Because see, faith is, faith is not a merit system. Faith isn't merit badges, even though sometimes we treat it that way. One of our faithful saints who's been around this church for a long time came up to me after the service in tears going, you know, I've been struggling. I've been struggling because I'm, I'm, I'm doing that right now. Man, I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not doing enough. Have I let him down? See, we all wrestle with that because sometimes I think the way faith has been taught, it's like a game at Chuck E. Cheese, right? You're like trying to down the clown, throwing out your rotator cuff. <sighs> Right, you're going above and beyond. Like you're trying to get all these tickets. Your wife's like, let the kids play. I was like, no, no, I got this. She's like, give them the card. You're like, no, I'm gonna take this. This clown's been staring at me for hours. You're trying to get all these tickets. You think, man, if I could just read my Bible and go to church, get baptized and give in the offering, I'll get my tickets. And then I'll cash it in for a prize. All of a sudden, now God's some genie in a bottle or some loan shark that you're negotiating with. You're like, man, I want a top shelf miracle. That's not how it works. See, faith is less a merit system and it's more of a view. It's a view of who Jesus is. And when you see him for who he is, you don't have to conjure up belief. You just see him and believe. See, Thomas was one of those that he had a full view of Jesus. You ever got a room on the coast and they ask you, do you want a full ocean view or a partial ocean view? You're like, I don't want, give me the whole thing, right? I wanna see all of it. See, Thomas had a full ocean view, but he still said, unless I'd put my feet in the water, I'm not gonna believe. But see, your belief does not change the power of the ocean. The ocean is what it is, whether you've touched it and seen. Jesus is who he is, no matter if you believe or not. And people touched, Thomas put his hands, put his feet, and how, here's what we're left with, friend. We don't have the opportunity to do that, but you know what we do? We do have a partial ocean view. It's each other. It's good works. See, faith is not about what you do, it's what you see. For faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is a substance of things hoped for the evidence of things unseen. All of a sudden, what we see 
is more than what meets the eye. All of a sudden you see life change and the reality of the gospel. And you realize he offers life that death can't stop. This new life in Jesus. And see friend, you have to wrestle with that. You can see the evidence and you can see him in what he's done in the people around you and the world around you. And you can look at him and you can fall to your feet like Thomas and say, my Lord and my God, you're in charge. You're why I'm here. I'm gonna do your work. And someday I'll see you face to face and I know I'll be like you. Or you can turn and walk away. My prayer is that as you see the person of Jesus, you'll fall at his feet, declare he is truly Lord. He's in charge and that changes everything. Will you pray with me? Gracious heavenly father, you are our Lord and our shepherd. What shall we want for? You make us lie down in green pastures. You give us rest, rest from the fear of punishment, from guilt and shame. You move us forward. You lead us in the path of righteousness. You lead us beside still waters. You restore our soul. You are a drink to our soul and you lead us in the path of righteousness. Why? For your name's sake. You lead us to do what's right. You lead us to do good works. Why? So the world can see you through us that they may see our good works and glorify God who is in heaven. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we realize that he's just playing shadow games. There is no fear in life or fear in death for you've conquered it. You prepare a table in the presence of our enemies. No matter what's going on and around in the world, we can feast and enjoy what you've put in front of us. And if the enemy can convince us to leave the table, he's already won, but we'll stop fighting and we'll start feasting. We'll put our swords on the table and we will dine and we will taste and see that the Lord is good. For the curse of sin is broken and your love has spoken life to us. You've set us free, O oh Lord, free so we could live not free so we could try to compartmentalize our darkness or stay out of the darkness, but you've set us free so that we can live and move and have our being so that people may see you and glorify our God who is in heaven. For surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life as we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?